You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 71, covering the week of May 8th through May 12th, 2017. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, just want to do our normal housekeeping. If you do like this podcast, go on out and like us on Facebook. It will be at the Abbeville Institute. Follow us on Twitter, at Abbeville Institute. Uh, also like our YouTube page or follow our YouTube page. If you want to get a free ebook, Kirkpatrick Sales Emancipation Hell, go on out to our website, www.abbevilleinstitute.org. Give us an email address and we'll give you a free ebook and you'll get signed up for our weekly and also daily email offering. Our daily offering is called the Daily Dose of Dixie, and then we offer a once-a-week email as well we put out that has this podcast link included in it, along with some other things, an article, and uh, any other information we have for you. Uh, just also want to remind you that our summer school is coming up in July, and uh, if you have not already gone out there and if you want to go and you, and, uh, you haven't contacted Dr. Livingston yet to do that, please go to our website, abbevilleinstitute.org. In the middle of the page, it will say, You're Invited. You click on that link, and all the information about the summer school is there. And uh, go ahead and get registered. It's going to be a great program. It'll uh, feature several great uh, academic faculty members, including yours truly. And so we'd like to see you there, and uh, it should be a good time. Okay, well, before I get started with the material for this week, I want to do a couple of uh, cleanup items. Uh, I have been told uh, this happens. uh, I know that uh, Dr. Clyde Wilson has listened to the podcast because he'll email me every now and then and say, Hey, uh, great podcast, but this. Uh, so a couple things I want to mention, my Mia culpas here. Uh, last week, I mentioned that Cleanth Brooks was part of the uh, original 12 Southerners. I was thinking of who owns America, and so I, I misspoke when I said that. Also, uh, a few podcasts ago, I mentioned that um, there was a funeral that Dick Cheney refused to attend in South Carolina, and I said it was Strom Thurmond. It was actually Floyd Spence. Uh, so a couple of things there where I got it wrong. And uh, I'm not too scared to admit when I get something wrong. So um, if, if you hear that I say something wrong, go ahead and, and uh, shoot, the, uh, shoot me an email uh, through the website. I can get them that way and uh, let me know. But uh, hopefully you are listening to it and uh, you're getting a lot of great information. And we had a great week this week as well. Um, so we have uh, five articles to talk about this week. Two of them had to do with Trump. And, uh, but the, the general theme... Uh, for the other articles, uh, at least for two of them, was also why the Southern tradition is important and how it's often misrepresented. And not only that, we have a, a book review. Again, we're going to be doing, uh, starting in July, we've already started the process, but we have a new book review editor. And so starting in July, we'll be running book reviews every week through the Abbeville Review. That will become the Abbeville Review of Books, and that will feature uh, solely book reviews. So anything else we're running, any other articles will be run through the blog side. But the review will be the book reviews alone. So let's talk about the, the material for the week. Uh, we started with a piece by Clyde Wilson entitled High Tech Hunley. And this is a wonderful little piece because it gets into the idea that the South was somehow backwards. And that Northerners, this, is, this was written actually when the Hunley was discovered and then raised to the surface. And you had a lot of Northerners saying, we didn't really think, rethink uh, the South's contribution to technology. Uh, and so a, a lot of people already knew this, that the South was not technologically backwards, uh, that Southerners were not lazy. Uh, South didn't have a lot of industry before the war because they didn't need it. Now, you could go down in the South and make a lot of money 
on a plantation. A lot of Northerners did this too. Uh, you had a lot of Northerners move into the South and buy plantations, whether it was a sugar plantation or a cotton plantation, tobacco plantation. Tobacco wasn't quite as profitable, but if you really wanted to make money, you got into cotton or sugar. And so Southerners didn't need factories. Why invest your money in a factory when you're not certain you're going to have any kind of return on that? And, of course, there was also the agrarian aversion to factories, which you found in the South. Uh, you had people like James DeBow constantly barking about the South being behind the North in terms of industry, and that was going to come back to bite them. And it did, ultimately, when they didn't have the industrial capacity to win the war. But uh, the... Uh, South uh, didn't need those kind of things, but it didn't mean they didn't have technological advancements. Uh, in fact, you had your first ironclad, of course, uh, the CSS Virginia. Uh, the North had the Monitor, which had the uh, the turret system on it, which was revolutionary for the time. But as Clyde points out in this piece, that was not even invented by a Northerner, but an immigrant, a uh, Swedish immigrant named John Erickson. Uh, but you had a variety of different things that were invented in the South. Uh, for example, uh, you had the greatest uh, uh, scientists in the world at the time, Matthew um, F. Murray. And uh, he was called the scientist of the seas. And actually, we had a piece uh, on, on Murray uh, on the website uh, a couple of years ago now. It's been, it's been about two years. But the scientist of the seas, this guy was world-renowned. For being, uh, for mapping the oceans. Um, also, you had the greatest naturalist in America, John James Audubon, uh, who was recognized around the world as being uh, such an important scientist. Uh, Cyrus McCormick, who invented the Reaper, of course, came from the South. Um, Richard Gatling of the Gatling Gun came from North Carolina. So you had uh, all these great innovations. The Hunley, uh, of course, the, the the first submarine to actually sink a ship. Uh, it was uh, a southern design. So just by saying the South was backwards, you have to get the whole picture. Now, for years, even after the war, it was often said that the South never matched the North in terms of literature or technology or these things. But as people have studied it, uh, they found that the South actually did have quite a lot of uh, intellectual advancements at the time in a variety of different fields. It, it wasn't uh, solely uh, a northern phenomenon in the United States to have great literary figures or great scientists or great thinkers. Uh, you had that in the South as well. And so that's, that's something that, uh, you know, the intellectual uh, acumen of Southerners has often been overlooked. Again, Southerners are considered to be lazy and, and under, unenterprising and backwards, but this is simply not true. If you look at the entirety of Southern history and you look at the people that have come out of the South, uh, the great scholars, the great philosophers, the great scientists, uh, the great literary figures. You would find that the South was very rich in these type of things as well. It's just that we've had, uh, as Susan Mary Grant wrote in her book, North Over South, we've had that type of climate since the war is over, uh, that the North was somehow the, the uh, basis of all great intellectual things in America, and the South was, an, was uh, inherently backwards. Uh, and that's just simply not true. Uh, now, that said, and that's actually parlays into a piece that uh, we published on Wednesday uh, by yours truly. And I'll talk about a couple of pieces on Trump here in a second. But uh, this particular piece on Wednesday uh, was entitled, Why the Southern Tradition is Winning. And so it doesn't appear that way. We, we've had a lot of defeats, it looks like, in the Southern tradition. Monuments are coming down. Flags are being uh, furled. You've got streets being renamed, schools being renamed. All of these things are going on. And so looking at it from the outside, you're saying, gosh, we're losing. 
the Southern tradition is losing, but that's not necessarily true. Uh, if all of the Confederate symbols were gone, the Southern tradition would still survive. It's still there. And there's parts of the Southern tradition that don't have anything to do with this four-year period of the war. And Dr. Livingston and I have talked a lot about this. And he said, you know, when, when the South seceded in 1860 and 61, they didn't have any symbols. They had to create all these things. And so uh, by removing all these symbols, people think they're taking away the Southern tradition. What they're actually doing is just taking away one element of the Southern tradition. But the Southern tradition still survives in a lot of different ways. So I, I asked you know, readers to consider the following. First, the victory of Donald Trump in 2016 is very much part of this Southern tradition. Now, people would not, uh, would not say that. I mean, they, they would say, you know, this is something different. But Trump's campaign relied on a Southern strategy, that the same Southern strategy that Nixon used in 1972. And it wasn't racism and bigotry. It was anti-establishment, blue-collar populism. This was what Trumpism was all about. Uh, when Trump ran, he was running on a non-interventionist foreign policy, bringing jobs back to America. You could say the same thing about 1976 when Jimmy Carter won. It's the same kind of blue-collar populism. Uh, and so that's what got Trump into the White House. That is a Southern agenda. And so the South is winning in that way. Now, I'll get into what this means in a second, but then you also look at things like secession and nullification and federalism. These are all very Southern ideas. Uh, nothing is more Southern than the principle of independence. Um, and so, you know, the other side keeps blabbering this is illegal, unconstitutional, uh, and the war settled the issue, but it couldn't. It can't do that. And so you've got this Tenth Amendment movement now that's very popular. You're starting to see a lot more gains there. This is all from the Southern tradition. Jefferson, who's very much Southern. Uh, you've got the, uh, you know, the Generation Snowflake. They're playing defense a little bit. Now, they're making demands, and colleges and universities are capitulating. Uh, but this is, this is an illusion. Uh, there's been a pushback against these illiberal liberals from the right and the left. Even people like um, Susan Warren, the faux uh, American Indian, have been saying that, you know, we shouldn't be keeping people like Ann Coulter from speaking. If you don't like her, just don't go to her talk. But we shouldn't do this to people. Uh, the snowflakes may have bitten off more they can chew, and, and not just that. Some of the groups like Take Em Down NOLA, uh, who admit that they would love to see George, a George Washington statue removed because he was a slave owner, it appears they've overplayed their hand a little bit. Most Americans would draw the line at that demand. We also have to remember in that way that Washington is as Southern as Lee. Uh, that uh, Thomas Jefferson is Southern, James Madison, James Monroe, the Declaration of Independence, the United States Constitution is Southern. So you can't get rid of those things without changing the entire narrative of American history. It's impossible. Uh, real America is too savvy for this type of attack. And the other thing we have to remember is that for years, the left have been, has been trying to contextualize, which I say meaning Yankify, Southern history, and They've made great signs in doing so, but doing so, but the war isn't over, not even close. Peoples in the world still see the South in a positive light. When the Berlin Wall came down, you had people flying Confederate flags along with unified German flags. Uh, Confederate flags are still seen around the world all over the place. Uh, and to many people, that flag represents nothing more than anti-establishment defiance. Uh, Northerners also proudly fly the flag. So no matter how hard the left is trying, the flag still exists. It may not be on public property anymore, but you can't get rid of it. 
You can't get rid of this thing around the world. And so all of this stuff you're seeing against Trump, uh, all of these things against Trump, about what Trump said about the war, it shows that the left is actually very insecure about their position. They know that even though they control the academy, they control the mainstream media, they control the correct interpretation of American history, a large percentage of Americans still don't buy it. And the left might chalk that up to ignorance, but perhaps real America knows what's going on here. They don't trust these people. They trust them less than politicians or maybe about the same, and that's a good thing. So by listening to this podcast, you're getting that too. You don't believe what these people are selling. So don't lose faith. I mean, there are some losses here. There's no doubt about it. Uh, New Orleans and Virginia and other places, you're seeing these things. But the Southern tradition is bigger than that. It's bigger than just a four-year period of American history, and we have to remember that. So I think, and don't despair. Look at the look at these things as as you know battles in a larger cultural war. The South can still win that cultural war. Uh, it just has to to do things properly to do it. So that said, when you think about uh, this Trump's faux pas again, we've run a couple of pieces about this all, or at least one piece. We ran two this week about that. This first piece uh, by Philip Lee, who has a great book coming out on Reconstruction. I uh, highly recommend. There's actually a link to it uh, on the piece itself. So go out there and get that. But he brings up this idea of um, why couldn't the North just let the southern states go? Why did there have to be war? And even Eric Foner asked this question. But uh, as Philip Lee says, Foner's inability to explain why the North decided to fight reflects a gigantic blind spot caused by his anti-southern historical interpretations. The real reason the North chose war was to avoid the economic consequences of Southern secession. Consider the following points. So, the economic consequences. A lot of times uh, you have these people um, who are call themselves anti-neo-Confederates. They like to trip, they like to play gotcha and supposedly trip up people like Tom DiLorenzo, others who talk about economics as a basis for the war. And what Lee does here is brilliant because he brings out some things that uh, he doesn't use this number well, you know, 90% of Southern of tariffs were paid, by, were, were paid by the South. Let me explain what he says about economics. He said, one, Southern cotton alone accounted for about two-thirds of all American exports, and all Southern exports represented about four-fifths of the country's total. A truncated federal union composed solely of Northern states could not hope to maintain a favorable international balance of payments. The situation would be worse if northern states tried to match the anticipated low tariffs in the new Confederacy. Ten days before South Carolina led the cotton states into secession on December 20, 1860, the Chicago Daily Times editorized on the calamities of disunion. Quote, this is from the Chicago Daily, Chicago Daily Times. Quote, in one single blow, our foreign commerce must be reduced to less than one half of what it is now. Our coastwide trade would pass into other hands. One half of our shipping would be idle. We should lose our trade with the South with all its immense profits. Our manufactories would be in utter ruins. If our protective tariff be wholly withdrawn from our labor, it could not compete with the labor of Europe. We should be driven from the market, and millions of our people would be compelled to go out of employment. So here is the actual key. It's not about who's paying the tariffs. It's about the North wouldn't be able to survive without Southern exports because the South would have been would have bypassed the north. So when Lincoln says, "What about my tariff?" It's not about the tariff collection in the southern ports. It's about the fact that the South, with a low tariff, 
would have driven the North basically out of business. They needed the cotton for that balance of trade. Number two, if the Confederacy were to survive as a separate country, its import tariffs would likely have been much lower than those of the Federal Union. President Jefferson Davis announced in his inaugural address, quote, Our policy is peace and the freest trade our necessities will permit. It is in our interest and those of our trading partners that there should be the fewest practical restrictions upon interchange of commodities. This means the low Confederate tariffs would confront the remaining states of the Abridged Union with two consequences. First, since the federal tax base relied chiefly upon the tariff, the government would lose the great majority of its tax revenue. Articles imported into the Confederacy from Europe would divert tariff revenue from the north to the south. Additionally, the Confederacy's low duties would encourage northern merchants to import European goods by smuggling them across the Ohio River, or the northwestern states might secede themselves to form a third country in order to unilaterally set low import duties from the southern Confederacy. Second, a low Confederate tariff would make southerners more likely to buy manufactured goods from Europe as opposed to the northern states where prices were inflated by protective tariffs. So, he gets right to the heart of the economic issue, something that really can't be answered in my mind. It was that favorable balance of, of trade and the potential for the South to have these low tariffs that set the North into uh, a, a serious economic crisis. Without the South, the North has some major problems. With all the cotton or the sugar, those are two things the South was exporting and making a lot of money on it. If the North could not be uh, tied into that anymore, if the South was going to do it themselves, that was going to cause major problems with the Northern economy. So I think in that particular uh, element of this piece alone, it's worth reading. He also gets into Lincoln's issues on slavery and other things, which, of course, we, we've talked about on this, on this podcast before. Uh, and I think it's important to read that and to, and to consider and to, con- and to keep talking about uh, this particular issue. Slavery was not the cause of the war uh, in terms of why did the North attack the South. It wasn't to end slavery. That's when you say slavery today. I mean, people think, well, you're talking about our 2017 moral aversion to the institution. But that was not the case in 1860 and 61. In fact, the majority of Americans could have cared less about slavery in the South. And that was the case from the 18th century to the middle of the 19th century. Lincoln himself said that. Uh, and so when you say slavery, it's, it's about the extension of slavery. And why did the North want to ex- not want to extend slavery? Well, because they didn't want the competition from slaves in terms of labor. They didn't want black people to even live in the same states. And I think that's the important thing to understand. Slavery was not a moral issue to most Northerners. It was a political issue. And it had been a political issue since the Constitution was written and ratified. It was a mask for the for the political economic conflict between the North and the South. That's the important part of it. So slavery was an issue, but it wasn't the cause of the war. Uh, Lincoln made that clear himself. And then on uh, on Thursday, we ran a piece by Sam Smith, who was a professor of history at Liberty University, again about the Trump issue. Uh, and so... Uh, what Smith, uh, Dr. Smith does very nicely here is get into uh, what leftists have said, have said about uh, the quote-unquote civil war uh, and how you really can't trust these people. And in fact, I love his conclusion in this. Uh, he says this, quote, A president needs to be measured, definitive, informed, and accurate. 
And he says, I hope Trump will improve in this area. Time will tell. His unpredictable stream of consciousness is concerning, but I am equally concerned with the, in- the intentional and purpose-driven statements coming from so many ideologically driven critics. A deeply alarming headline that jumped out at me was from the previously quoted Chicago Sun-Times article by DePaul professor, professors Foster and Story. Their headline reads, quote, Trump's assault on our national history must end. He says, read that again and think about its implications in a free society. It's almost as if they see Trump's comments as treasonous. Outside the fact that such a statement could be interpreted as a veiled threat to a sitting president, one wonders at the amount of arrogance it takes to claim such a one-size-fits-all national history, and that someone's descent from the orthodoxy is an assault that must be stopped. He says, I can hardly imagine a more elitist, fundamentalist-like, and undemocratic view of history. Just how they think Trump should be stopped is not clear. I will try to give them the benefit of the doubt. And this is true. You saw this, this vitriolic attack on Trump. This guy's got to be stopped. And so, I mean, this is, I, I love this piece because he gets to that. As he says, historians should never claim absolute inerrancy on causation of events, especially as one as complicated as the Civil War. When we close the door to all possibilities of interpretation, we inevitably move from empirical scholarship into a type of dogmatics far removed from the rules of evidence. This is true. What they want to do, and uh, they narrow the interpretation to a point where it, it won't go beyond two lines. You're either, if you deviate any any way, well, you're seen as you know a stranger. You're outside. This is what the historical profession has become. And so Dr. Smith gets into that very nicely. And that is one thing that I... Uh, that I um, loved about this piece. And then finally on, on Friday, we ran a piece entitled Bledsoe on St. Elmo. Now, uh, Augusta Jane Evans's birthday was on um, May 8th, Monday. And she wrote one of the more popular novels of the 19th century, St. Elmo. And I actually wrote about Augusta Jane Evans in my book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Real American Heroes. And uh, she was one of the real American heroes as, as an author. And um, this is a very critical review, and there was one particular part of this review that I found interesting. Now, of course, Albert Taylor Bledsoe was a great uh, philosopher, uh, wrote the definitive book on, de- on the defense of secession, is Davis a traitor? And so after that, after the war was over, he ran uh, a, a magazine with his daughter entitled The Southern Review, and it's wonderful. You can get these things for free online. And so this review was actually written in 1867 when St. Elmo was published. And one thing he wrote in here, um, uh, he says, the moral tone and teachings of the story are unexceptionable. Now, that was the case in 1867, but I would say today, in 2017, they're not, because these are all things that have been lost. And so this, I ran this um, particular uh, this particular piece, or we ran this particular piece, because uh, I think it's important to show where America has come, you know, San Elmo was was this was a common novel in terms of how men and women should interact with each other, their moral uh, their moral boundaries. It was common in 1867, but not so today. And uh, Augusta Jane Evans is also an interesting character because she was a 19th century feminist, but in a way that's not seen as feminism today. She believed in the traditional role of women. Uh, but she did believe that women should be educated. They should be, uh, you know, they should they should have a a grand role in their sphere of influence. They should uh, be important 
in the home because the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. I mean, this is what she thought. Uh, she didn't think they actually called women who went out to work and other they called them blue stockings because they just uh, they, they thought they were kind of strange. Uh, and, and so you see this very interesting, you know, debate about feminism and what it means in the 19th century and what it means today. And so if you read St. Elmo, you get, you get that. She talks about communism in this novel. She talks about feminism. She talks about these type of things. And I think that's something that's so interesting uh, that uh, you, don't, you don't see this in 2017 uh, the way that they saw it in 1867, 150 years later. Uh, but you know, it, again, it is a critical piece, and there are some some things you can you can say that the, the book is hard to get through at times, and that's what they point out. You know, I guess Jane Evans could have been a better writer if she just wasn't so pedantic. Uh, but I think the book is is very good, and you should read it if you've never read it before. Abuela, which is another one she wrote, is very good as well. Uh, and of course, Augusta Jane Evans being from from Alabama, uh, so. Uh, it, it's it's a wonderful little review, and it's kind of a throwback, you know, for for a book review. We're talking about a 150 year old book review, but it's very good. So I'd highly recommend you going out and reading that. Uh, so I, I I hope that you um, get a chance to read these articles for this week because they are really good. Uh, most of them are not very long. Uh, it doesn't take a lot of time, but I think it's uh, it's they're a nice example of. Uh, where we are as a people in the South, uh, where Southern history is going, where, where the Southern tradition is going, and the things that we still have to uh, be proud of and things that we still have to work for uh, in exploring what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition. Until next time, good day. Good day.